All right. If you can turn to First Peter chapter one. I'm sure some of my fellow presbyters wish that my uh, laryngitis was even worse, so I wouldn't speak even as much as I did at presbytery. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to read the first two verses. We're going to focus on verse two this morning, but uh, since it's one sentence, uh, that sort of makes sense to give us a little context for what's going on here in First Peter chapter one. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let's pray. Father, bless us and keep us by your word which uh, we read and which is to be proclaimed, but also understood and believed. May those who believe know that your face shines upon them. May they know that you are indeed gracious to them. Turn toward us. And give us peace, though our lives are filled with turmoil and conflict. Express your great and abiding love to your people. In Christ Jesus, our Savior and Lord, and in whose name we pray, amen. If you were to come to my house, since I didn't bring it this morning, and I brought you upstairs or perhaps brought my strong box from my closet downstairs, I could produce for you the one proof, the one piece of evidence that I'm actually a citizen of the United States of America. I could take out my little passport and show it to you. I lament that it's a newer passport because my stamps from places like Mexico and uh, Great Britain have gone the way of all things with my former passport. But nonetheless, why am I a citizen of the United States? How is it that I got to be born here? It was through, shall we, if we look back in time, and we see that I was born here because certain people decided to move here. Some moved from the little island of Sicily, some move from France, some move from Poland, Poland, <coughs> and some, dare I say, even move down from Canada. <laughs> so that somehow my parents, who were the product of all of these people who had moved to this country, got together, got married, had three children, of whom I am the last, born, unfortunately, in Lawrence, Massachusetts, but raised gloriously in Nashua, New Hampshire. <laughs> that sort of explains to a degree of how it is I am a citizen of this particular country. Paul has evoked and reminded the Christians in these places that they are elect 
exiles, that they have a citizenship which is in heaven. And Paul, uh, sorry, Peter, now seeks to explain how it is that they are in fact citizens of heaven. Now, remember, we talked about that last week in terms of this is their, not just their status, this is their identity before God so that this is intended to shape the way that they interact with their circumstances and with the people who are around them. It's not just a nice little factoid. The fact that I'm an American citizen affects what I do. It means I could vote. And I can vote for the person I want to. And you don't have to like it. I don't have to like who you vote for. It means I can go, if I didn't have family in town, I could go to one of two protests or marches. One for women and one for life. And you wouldn't have to like it. These people have benefits of their citizenship in heaven that... Peter is going to begin to explain to them. So let's start with this. Our big idea that, that Peter is sort of beginning to explain and expound for them is that the Trinity works together for our complete salvation. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to walk through this text. There's some times where um, <clears throat> you... You don't actually follow the text. You pick up the, the, the main themes of a text, but this one is very simple. We're just going to walk down this road that Peter brings us down. And so the first part of this road is that God the Father knew us and chose us before creation. Remember, in verse 1, he considers these Christians to not only be exiles, but to also be elect. And now he connects this with the doctrine of the Trinity in order to explain what he means. It was interesting at Presbytery, one of my fellow pastors mentioned that he doesn't focus too much on the doctrine of election. He kind of tells them, um, you're, you're, you've been elect, deal with it. If you want to understand it, buy me a beer. And he'll explain it to them. I'm not making any such offer this morning. <laughs> because Peter explains it to a degree. So I'm going to explain it to a degree. He says that this election here in verse 2 is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This is interesting because Peter is not talking here about <clears throat> the, what we call the ontological trinity. Meaning, God, within, with relationship to Himself, within the three persons. Okay, they're all here, the ontological trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and they have a relationship with one another, but He's not talking about here their relationship with one another, but their relationship with creation, and more specifically, their relationship with those they save. And so it's, we're talking here about what's called the economic trinity. How they've decided to kind of divvy up responsibilities amongst themselves with regard to the salvation of their people. 
And so we see <clears throat> that he makes distinctions. And so right now he's talking about the Father's role in all of this. Now, recognize, all three, Father, Son, and Spirit, they're united in purpose. And that purpose is our salvation. But they all have differing roles in the fulfillment of that purpose. And so Peter says that the Father, our election is according to His foreknowledge. Now, forethought is the idea. Prearrangement is the idea of what's going on here. The fact that God made a plan of salvation, that the Father initiates this plan. He has laid out sort of the blueprint, so to speak. We know a bit about blueprints, right, Ken? Oh, yes. We have a new modular that's over there. It's only a couple years old. And we had to have not just a blueprint of the building, but we had to have a blueprint of this building for the remodeling of this building. And we had to have a master site plan and all of these things so that we could do the renovations and expansions that were accomplished. We couldn't just decide to show up one day with some hammers and nails and some wood and just do stuff. Right? That's not how buildings get done. And it's the same thing with our salvation. God didn't do this on the fly. Let's just see what happens. Make it up as we go along. But we see rather that the, the Father, applying forethought, devised a plan that results in the salvation of the people He intends to save. We see this similarly uh, referred to in Acts chapter 2 when Peter, once again, is speaking at the, the uh, Pentecost. <coughs> and he says in verse 23, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So we see two things going, a couple things going on here. One of which is the crucifixion of Jesus was not an accident, but it was part of the plan of God for salvation. God planned this ahead of time. Even so, we see the responsibility of people in the execution of Jesus. It's not as if somehow <clears throat> the plan of God absolves you from responsibility and somehow removes your free choices. But the Westminster Confession of Faith says that God has ordained whatsoever comes to pass, but in such a way that he does no violence to the will of the creature. So we see both of those things in Acts chapter 2. And so we should not misunderstand this idea of election to indicate that somehow you are a robot or an automaton. Do not confuse it with the <clears throat> philosophical or Islamic understanding of fate, but see instead here that it is a result of God the Father working to save the children that he is seeking to adopt and will adopt. 
We see in John's gospel, which we studied earlier, that the father chooses a people that he gives to his son as his very own. The sheep that he is going to rescue, the sheep that he is going to shepherd. Now, when we see this word for knowledge, some of our Arminian brothers and sisters seek to explain this in a way that's different than the way we explain it. They kind of look at it like this. God who is outside of time, which is true. Okay, God is not trapped in time like we are. God is outside of time. It's, a, it's something he has constructed and created. So they say, God outside of time looks through the quarters of time, sees who will believe, and then chooses to save them. That's not what I believe. I don't, believe, I don't think that is what Peter believes. It's not what Paul believed. I don't think it's what Jesus believed. But rather, it is the notion that we see in Romans chapter 8. <coughs> For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So in Romans 8, what is foreknown that, you know, verb form of foreknowledge, the noun that we see in 1 Peter 1, <clears throat> is not their actions, but they themselves. It is not their faith that is foreknown, but it is they themselves that is foreknown. And so God is not simply ratifying your choice. God is choosing you so that you will choose Him. Those are two very different things. One gives glory to God as the one who is the initiator of it all, and one gives glory to man who makes the first choice by saying, I choose Jesus, and then God chooses me. And so there's more at stake here than just a philosophical idea. What's at stake here is the very glory of God and how we think about it. And so we see that God is working in and through time. He is not a victim of time who only reacts to the unseen choices of other people but rather we see that He has set His love upon His people, choosing to love them, as we talked about from Deuteronomy 7 last week, and that it is not about setting His love on people who have first chosen Him. John would agree. For, again, not just because of his gospel, but also his letters, we see in 1 John, this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and gave His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. And so the emphasis is always on the love of God for a sinful people who then being redeemed respond in love to Him. And so these multiplied blessings that we see at the end of chapter 2, sorry, verse 2, have their source in the plan of the Father to bless us in Christ Jesus the Son. Second, 
the Spirit sets apart all those that the Father knew and chose. In other words, this plan that the Father put together in His foreknowledge must be enacted in order for it to accomplish its intended purpose. And so it wasn't enough for us to have a master site plan and some detailed blueprints. We actually had to hire a contractor to come in here and do the work for us because, by golly, you don't want me doing that work for you. Right? Well, Pastor Steve's got some extra time. He's only working on Sunday. Let's let him do the remodeling. Bad move. <laughs> okay? <clears throat> My... My wife has to have her brother-in-law come in from New Jersey to, to take care of projects in our house. So um, there you have it. <clears throat> and so this plan is enacted, just like the blueprints are now put into action for the construction of a building. And we see that this is done in the sanctification of the Spirit. You would have thought that Peter would first go to the work of the Son, but instead he goes to the work of the Spirit. Don't put that man in a box, I say. Chosen by the Father, we are then subsequently set apart, which is what that word sanctification means. We're set apart by the Spirit. Let's unpack this a little bit. The eternal decree given before creation, which we saw from Ephesians chapter 1, is put into effect in time, in particular times. And so, I was set apart by the Spirit, probably in 1985, 86, right there. My conversion was in January, so, you know, it happens right in there. It's, boom, happens fast. When you were sanctified by the Spirit, was it a different point in time than it was for me? Jack, he's forgotten it's been so long, okay? <clears throat> But God doesn't just have the plan, He enacts the plan, and that involves enacting it for particular people at particular points in time. When we come to this word sanctification by the, of the Spirit, it's easy for us to get confused because of the way Scripture speaks of sanctification. Because it actually speaks of sanctification in two ways. Maybe you haven't heard this before. Maybe you have. It speaks of sanctification first off in terms of what is called definitive sanctification. We see this in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. Another one of Calvin's favorite verses one of my favorite verses, and I probably I wrote what's probably not a very good song uh, on this. The good part of it is what my sister-in-law wrote in terms of music. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And I think the sanctification spoken of there is our definitive or initial sanctification that we receive upon conversion. It's part of our regeneration, and it points to that idea of you have now been set apart from the rest of humanity to belong to God. 
while we were on vacation, uh, we had breakfast every day. But there was one particular day we had had breakfast, and, and um, I was going to make my own sandwich, so to speak. English muffin, cheese, I can't remember, I think it was bacon. Because everyone else had eggs. I don't do eggs. And I had picked out, from amongst the large plate of English muffins, because this was about 12 people, I had picked out what I thought were the best English muffin pieces for my little sandwich. They were set apart on a different plate from the rest of them. Unfortunately, I didn't remind anyone else of this, and while I was turning my back, my daughter ate them. <clears throat> but it's like that. Remove from the whole to be designated and set apart for the purpose of God is definitive sanctification. Okay? We also, the Bible speaks about what we call progressive sanctification, which is our growth in holiness so that what we received positionally becomes personal. The righteousness which was imparted to us in justification now becomes imparted to us so that we really become personally holy. We see this spoken of in places like 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, which he explains that you abstain from sexual immorality, and he continues. And so that's about the turning away from sin, the putting to death of unrighteousness, and to putting on righteousness, walking in obedience. Now, I think he's talking about here definitive sanctification. But you cannot have progressive sanctification unless you first have definitive sanctification. In other words, you will not be devoting yourself to God unless he has first devoted you to himself. One produces the other. He devotes us so that we will be devoted. God's will, His plan, is to both set us apart for Himself and also for us subsequently to set ourselves apart to Him. Now while this phrase, I think, is pointing to definitive sanctification, this verse This sentence also includes progressive sanctification. I almost sounded like R.C. Sproul there. Like Rowley voice. But what I'm getting at here, and what Peter is getting at, is that Christianity is not simply a theoretical, abstract, intellectual kind of thing. We do need to think. We're transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so how we think is important, but it doesn't stop 
with how we think. We also have to experience certain things. And the first thing that they're supposed to experience was that the Spirit sanctified them or set them apart because the Father had chosen them. And so the Spirit sets us apart for these multiplied blessings that the Father chose to give us in Christ. Thirdly, we are set apart to be purified and obedient to Jesus. And so the purpose of our election and our sanctification in salvation is twofold as indicated by that little word for. F-O-R, not F-O-U-R, which occurs twice in this to indicate that's a purpose word. I went to the store. Why did I go to the store? For supplies for Dan to remodel the house. That's a purpose for the reason of. So the first four that Peter gives them is that they have been chosen, they've been set apart for obedience to Jesus Christ. And so just like them, you and I, if we believe in Jesus Christ, had been set apart for obedience to Jesus the Messiah. That obedience begins with obeying the gospel message of repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, just as Peter himself preached at Pentecost. That's the first obedience. The Greek word for obedience is interesting in that it's, you know, the word here with the prefix hyper stuck on the front. Okay? To really hear, so to speak. We kind of borrowed it a little bit in English. Um, did Parents will often say this, did you hear me? And they're not simply speaking often about the fact that you your ears worked and you heard a voice, but they're talking about, did you do what I told you to do? And so this idea of obedience starts with hearing, believing that what God says to us is good, and then going about it. So kids, when your parents give you instructions, If you believe that what your parents say is good for you, you will be more likely to actually do it. If you believe your parents have a plan to destroy you, then you will not do it. If you think their plan is to rob you of all joy in life, then you will resist their words with every fiber in your being. And we as adults can do that with God. And we think God's the cosmic killjoy and all of these fun things. But if we believe because of the gospel, if we believe that because His Son laid down His life as a propitiation for our sins, we recognize the commands of God are good for us, we'll be more likely to occasionally obey them. And so... Peter develops this theme throughout this first chapter 
Because in verse 14, he says, as obedient children. Children of the Father, walking in obedience. In verse 22, he says, by your obedience to the truth. And so, it's something he's going to develop through the rest of this chapter, but it's kind of laid out here, right? Boom. Verse 2. And so, one of the goals of the Trinity in our salvation is to make us personally obedient. I don't like the word victory. Maybe it's a personal thing. I don't like it when people talk, Christians talk about being victorious. Because that seems to think the battle's over. The battle keeps going on. And while I might be obedient to God's command today, I might not be obedient to it tomorrow. Because there's a whole new battle. It's sort of like the World Series. There's seven of those games, and you've got to win four of them. Just because you win one doesn't mean it's all over. Unlike football. Okay. I'll, I'll stop there since there's a game today. <clears throat> but if you tried to present a picture of salvation to Peter that did not result in your personal obedience, the Apostle Peter would think that you have an unbiblical understanding of salvation. If grace does not result in growth and obedience, then you haven't understood grace. Okay? Now remember, I'm not saying everything there's to be said about this subject. Okay, I'll talk later on, not today, but another time about the reality of indwelling sin and the struggle to obey. But I'm just laying this out right now because there are people who think that saved by grace seems to mean that you don't have to grow in obedience. What's the point of regeneration? So, Peter, on the basis of Christ's work for our salvation, calls us to obedience in Christ, but he also says that, that, that we were chosen and we were set apart for sprinkling with his blood. Now, doesn't that sound appealing? That's one of those things that our uh, modern uh, American minds have a hard time with. It sounds strange to us, and again, this is rooted in the Old Testament, the covenant, as we read, uh, well, as Mike read for us in Exodus 24, the covenant was sealed with the sprinkling of blood. It was The animal was slain, and then the blood was sprinkled on the people. Wouldn't that be awesome? People worry about... <clears throat> I remember when I was a younger Christian, uh, Tony Campolo was infamous for if you were in the first few rows, you were getting sprayed. Okay? And, and who wants to get sprayed by Tony Campolo? Not me. Okay. So, but if you were there, 
here's Moses and the elders, and they've slaughtered the animal, and they take the blood, and they put it on a branch, and they dip it, and they fling it out there on everybody. That sounds like a really bad rock concert, if you ask me. But they signed the covenant in blood. It was established. It was firm. And so what Peter is getting at here, in part anyway, is, as he's going to get to this again later on in chapter 1, the covenant is guaranteed in the blood of Jesus, not the blood of a bull, and not your blood. And so the promises that you are banking on in Christ Jesus are guaranteed by His blood. He's not going to cheat you. He's not going to lie to you. He's not, unlike me, going to make you a promise and find himself unable due to circumstances to fulfill that promise. It's going to happen. For instance, we see not only in Exodus 24, but we see in Hebrews 12, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What, what word did the blood of Abel speak? My brother's guilty. My brother's guilty. He slayed me. What does the blood of Jesus speak? My brother's forgiven. My brother's forgiven because I took his sin for him. He belongs to me now. My brother's forgiven. A much better word than my brother is guilty, my brother is condemned. Is what the blood of Jesus speaks to us. And we need to listen to that word when we feel guilty. Because Satan, of course, will tell you all about your guilt in every imaginable form so that you do anything but look to the blood of Jesus for forgiveness. And so the covenant of salvation has been sealed in the blood of Christ, the spotless lamb. Blood was also sprinkled for purification. So they take the articles of the tabernacle and they purify it with the blood of the sacrifice to remove the guilt, to remove the sin. And we, brothers and sisters, have been set apart in order to be sprinkled with His blood for purification. It's hinted at there in Psalm 51. Purge me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. It's spoken of in Ezekiel 36 in the promise of the new covenant. I will sprinkle you, uh, clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. It's spoken of, I believe, in 1 John chapter 1. For instance, verse 7, the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses you from all sin. And then building on that in verse 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, all unrighteousness understood because of the blood of Christ. 
And so we have been set apart because we have been chosen for purification from the blood of Christ. That's good news. And so we have this promise of purification through the precious blood of Christ, which calls us to believe it and to receive it. Not to make our own way of atonement for our sins. Not to think, I must say some extra prayers today. Not to think, I must give more alms to the poor next week. Not to think, well, if I just try harder and do better next week, God will overlook my sin. But to say, no, God has dealt with my sin once and for all in the death of His Son for sinners. As a result of this, Peter asks on behalf of this community, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. It seems like the standard benediction. Paul also asked for grace and peace in all of his letters. But what's interesting is that Peter uses this phrase, be multiplied to you. He does it not only here, but he does it also in 2 Peter chapter 1. And oddly enough, Jude also uses that additional extended formula in his greeting to the people that he writes. Grace and peace multiplied to you. With, with Peter's rich Old Testament background, I think this is the ironic blessing of number six applied to the people because it focuses on grace and peace. It focuses on the Father turning His face toward them. And if He is their Father, He has turned His face toward them. And He's asking that the Father would give him, give them that grace and peace. That it would in fact be multiplied or lavished upon them. In, in Acts, this word is used to describe how the Israelites multiplied in Egypt how they grew to such a degree that the Egyptians were afraid of them. And they grew even despite the opposition of the Egyptians to them. This word is also used in Acts to describe that the church grew. The church multiplied despite the opposition they experienced. Peter who witnessed all of that, wants this, in this case, peace, a grace and peace to be multiplied to these people despite the opposition that they are experiencing, which we are going to hear about through the course of this letter. It's almost as if he, the, the, the image that comes to my mind is the waves breaking on the shore. Now, waves differ in size, but if you go to the ocean, this happens. The waves never stop breaking on the shore. 
grace and peace do not stop breaking upon our hearts because they have been won by the blood of Jesus. And when we're in affliction, there's our hope. When the church in Florida was closing, I met with one of my friends, and he asked me, Steve, how do you keep going every day? And I said, lamentations. His mercies are new every morning. Great is His faithfulness. He doesn't feel like it today, but I know it's true. And so He sends wave after wave of grace and peace to us so that we are able to keep going. But let's not separate the blessings from Jesus. The reason that we keep receiving grace and peace is because He keeps giving us more of Himself in Jesus, who is full of grace and peace. So the Father keeps giving us the Son. And the Son keeps bringing us with Himself grace and peace. And so these Christians that are dispersed are secure even though they don't feel secure. Even though they experience persecution, they are secure. And so are we. And so life was difficult for those Christians. They needed to know who they were. They needed to know how they got to be who they were so they could live faithfully in a faithless place. They were elect exiles precisely because the Father had chosen them according to His plan, because the Spirit had set them apart to receive blessing, and the Son had guaranteed their salvation and had purified them with His blood. And so we, like them, can be sure that grace and peace will be multiplied to us even in the most difficult of circumstances. Are we living in light of this truth? Or are we giving a foothold to our fears? Well, Peter, and therefore I, We'll unpack this even more in the weeks to come. Let's now pray. Father, help us indeed to believe. To believe that what You have said through our brother Peter in the power of the Holy Spirit, that these God-breathed words that were written down for us are true. And they're not just true in the abstract, but they are true for us. Help us to gain a greater awareness of our pardon, particularly when we are afflicted by guilt and we hear the voice of the accuser in our minds. 
Help us to remember the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. Help us to remember that there is thou therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because He has done what we could not do. Father, help us to grow in our obedience. To have a greater desire to be obedient. To reflect Your perfect character. Father, help us to move from those who have been devoted to You to those who express devotion to You. To be people who are putting away what pertains to the old man and putting on what pertains to the new man in Christ Jesus. So be working these things in us. Because we cannot work them in ourselves. We have been broken by sin. And we desperately need your work by the Spirit and the Word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.